Here we go. Hey there, folks. This is your host, Cameron Ivey of Privacy Please, and thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. All righty then, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I am your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me, as always, Mr. Gabe Gums. Gabe, how are you doing today? I am well. Thank you, sir. Welcome back. It's good to have you. Where you been? Thank you. Ah, uh, you know, I went to Disney with the family. It was my son's second birthday. We just celebrated yesterday, actually. And it was my birthday on Wednesday just passed, so it was a fun little vacay. Happy birthday to all of the, uh, the Ivies out there. Thank you. Yeah, a lot, lot going on. It was a busy week. Um, show, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we have, you off. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a busy week. Go ahead, go ahead. No, it was a busy week. That's it. Yeah. But we're, it's Monday and we're recording, so it's good we times. Are. We are. We have a good guest. On today's show, I don't think our it's our guest birthday today, but I could be wrong. So who do we have? So uh, we have a great guest today, Gina Toronto, uh, Director of Applied Science, Accelerated Learning Solutions at ProSearch Strategies. Gina, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. You know, we're going to start the show off just like we always do. Uh, if you want to just tell us about yourself and the listeners so we can get to uh, know a little bit more about you. Uh, I'm, I'm Gina. I am, well, by training, I am a linguist. Um, I just, I've always loved words and was fortunate enough to uh, get into doing things with words from an early age. And so I uh, went to college, did some linguistics, did some graduate school in linguistics, ended up with a PhD in linguistics, and ended up turning that into a career in language technology. Um, And I've kind of covered a wide range of topics in research and language technology. But now, uh, with ProSearch, we're focused on discovery. Fantastic. So, so tell us about ProSearch. What, what is ProSearch? What do you do there? What's, what's the. Yeah. So ProSearch is, is, I would, I would call us a global provider of discovery services. So when corporations or law firms need to manage their litigation or investigation or regulatory or compliance matters, um, if this investigation involves searching, sorting, sifting through large volumes of electronically stored data, we're there. And sort of in the context of that, um, applying data science and language techniques to language processing, uh, we use things like um, deep neural networks, computer vision, and predictive coding to find topics of interest in data. my title you mentioned is Director of Applied Science, kind of slash accelerated learning solutions. And that is all about, um, you know, there's computers and there's people now when we're talking about technology and each of them have things that they do well. So if you're going to kind of optimize the interaction between humans and computers, you sort of 
you want to be training these computers to learn to replicate the judgments a human might make. And you also want to kind of help the computers do what they're good at, like doing things fast, consistently. Um, You want them to do the sifting and the sorting to help humans answer their kind of human questions more quickly. So that's kind of me and ProSearch in a little bit of a nutshell. That's awesome. Now, Gabe, yeah, Gabe, Gabe, how did you come across? I know that you had uh, come across Gina's article. Why don't we talk about that? Yeah, we, we should jump in a lot. So, Gina, you, you actually came to our attention through a fascinating article you wrote uh, on law.com um, that really caught my attention. I thought the listeners would really like to, to dive into a bit. It was titled Facing New Privacy Regulations Head On. Um, if you could tell us a bit about the article, but, but more importantly, why you wrote the piece. Well, I think the reason I wrote it is what we're seeing is everybody knows privacy is an issue. Everybody, you know, most people care about privacy. They care about their personal privacy. And in the past several years, um, global regulation and and litigation or uh, regulation and compliance and sort of um, GDPR, CCPA, CPRA, all of these, uh, these guidelines are coming out ostensibly to protect privacy. Everybody gets that it's important. Everybody understands that probably at some point they're going to be responsible for doing it, but nobody knows how to do it or what compliance looks like yet. Um, And so folks know they need to care about it, but they're not quite sure what to do to care about it. And that's where sort of the notion of facing it head on became something that seemed to be worth collecting some thoughts about. And in, in kind of your words, what, what does facing it head on mean, though? We've been, we, we as an industry have been uh, tackling privacy. I think a lot of folks would think they're taking it head on, but I'm not sure many of them are. I think a lot of them are actually kind of, you know, they're, they're catching as catch can, which is the opposite, in my opinion, of what head on might be. But, but what does that mean to you? To me, head on means let's understand where the private data is is that sits in your stuff like what what personal or private or protected information are you, are you holding on to let's quantify it and understand what needs to be done about it so facing it head on is really knowing what's there and having a plan to do something about it now where where i come in from in discovery we're a little bit um downstream from where a lot of the conversations are happening. You know, folks in information governance or in IT, uh, people in in compliance departments are all very interested in privacy and where private information is sitting. You know, HR departments have lots of private information about employees. And then there are marketing departments that, you know, especially in B2C businesses, you know, they've got loads of private information. Um, Understanding... So, so, so kind of upstream in the enterprise, there can be a lot of people who have their, their hands in privacy and they look at privacy through their own lens, where my team and my organization looks at it. Um, we're really looking at data that has been sort of implicated or collected or is, you know, is in sort of a litigation matter. We're, we're looking potentially at a, a data transfer 
And so cross-border data transfers became a big deal with GDPR. So now we're looking at the fact that this, this data might be moving or, or potentially even crossing a border. And if that's going to happen, what are you going to do to protect it? Right? There's not a lot of clear guidance on that. But let's just, if you know the data is there, you kind of know what you're looking for. The types of data of interest have been enumerated at length in various regulations, right? Let's see. Okay, so what are the tools we have just to make sense of it? Even though we don't have a lot of court precedent or legal precedent to, to guide us, there are probably some common sense tools and workflows that we can leverage to at least protect ourselves, I think. Let me claim to agree with you. Is that something that your organization does provide is kind of uh, that, that, that guidance around those things? Um, I, I like to make some of these conversations a bit more practical. Mm-hmm. So what are one of those kind of common sense workflows that you advise customers to endeavor on? Well, this is where I just think about, I mean, most of our clients have workflows for document, you know, for search or for finding topics of interest, for queuing up um, documents for review, just in a review platform. Um, There are technologies available to highlight keywords or key concepts. There are technologies that are being used to redact things in the case of privilege. And I think privilege is a really, it's a good, um, it's something that's good to look at because we know a lot about privilege and how to do privilege. And um, when you're trying to protect privilege, if you're going to redact something or anonymize something or withhold and log, you know, the workflows are available to do that. So it just sort of, it's a, it's a, it's a practical skills kind of approach to leveraging what we've already got. The difference is that, um, and I'm, you know, grossly oversimplifying it, but, you know, one of the things folks do when they're searching for privileged documents is to look for headers that say privileged and confidential, <laughs> you know, I mean, so you've got some search capabilities there. You've got fancier techniques that involve looking for the attorneys, you know, and, and names of law firms and things of that sort. With privacy, you can be looking for a different set of features or facets on a document in order to identify what might be making that document privileged or what might be causing that document to have private information that you might want to do something about before you produce or cross a border just for your workflow because you're a large global organization. You mentioned something in particular that I think is a little, uh, I'm just going to use the word vexing, but maybe that's the wrong word. Maybe it's because I'm impatient, but there is not a lot of precedent in privacy in general. And so it makes sometimes interpreting the, the way these new laws should be applied a little challenging when, you know, there's some room for interpretation in some of it too. So how are you, how are you helping your customers handle? I think, you know, doing assessments and understanding where the, um, the private information is understanding how much of it is giving them just, I mean, it's really, it's, it's the way ProSearch goes about doing a lot of things. It's getting a handle on large sets of data um, just by doing what we call corpus analysis. So understanding what's in the document collection, um, volume or yield, things of that sort, um, and letting our clients make the best decision they can 
based on the specific matter and the specifics of, of a case. And then they can work cross-functionally internally and understand is there a position that they're going to take on it. What we try to do is sort of take a position even I'm kind of, you know, and it's it's not fair, um, but if we use GDPR as sort of just the stand-in, you know, for a, a privacy type of, of regulation, there are some folks who, who are, are like the GDPR is um, about preventing the transfer of data. And then other people are talking, well, no, it's not. The GDPR is there to encourage commerce, to encourage the data to be transferred and to make it safe to do so, to encourage people to follow security protocols so data isn't at risk in transit or after transit and that it, you know, and people's private information therefore is protected. So we sort of take that generous interpretation of it to say, okay, so if somebody's operating in that way, how do we help them then? And then our next thing is, well, they're probably still going to have to share this information. So what do we need to to do about it? Well, we need to understand what kind of private information is there um, and sort of what is it occurring with. One of the things that we're seeing with the, um, I don't know if it's the right word, pastiche, but, you know, it's like every get moving away from the GDPR and into just this. California has something, New York has something, Virginia has something, you know, every state, uh, Illinois has got stuff coming up, everyone's got something and the requirements are slightly different. Some, some agency or some requirement might say that if you've got a credit card number, you know, you got to do something about that. Some, some other jurisdiction might say, well, we only care that the credit card number is there if it's also accompanied by a personal name and a zip code. And some also might want that three-digit CVC code to be there too, right? So um, I think it's just sort of really being able to get at a granular level of what's in a document or what's in the data and understanding like how it's configured, if it's co-occurring with a number of things. So you can apply a rule to say, oh yeah, I got to be careful of this, better redact the name and the credit card number or whatever the, the the case may be. But since it can be so specific to a matter by matter basis based on the organization, um, what the different departments in the organization are thinking, the jurisdiction that they're dealing with in terms of say an investigation or regulatory compliance, like all of those things need to be taken into consideration. So I think just a modular approach to looking at what's there, having all of the ingredients. Oh, and I'm already on food metaphors. Didn't your mother ever tell you not to play with your food? But having all of the ingredients there so you can combine them the way, you know, the recipe is going to tell you to for a given meal. I've, I've just jumped it. A, a different meal or a different matter. I appreciate a good food, food analogy. And then that does work for me. Um, I can continue that with that analogy because it is going to be harder for some folks to to digest some components than it will be others. Ha, see what I did there? <laughs> yeah, I liked it. I liked it. But you're right. You're right. And that's one of the things we struggle with too. Uh, you know, there are some things that definitively that uh, we know our customers should be doing. And then there's some things that we, we, we like them to talk to their own internal legal teams about to make sure that they're getting the clarity and, and the sign off they need. If I can kind of turn gears in reverse just a little bit back, because for those of you that 
that pay attention at home, you know, Spirian is a data discovery and classification technology, right? And there are some, I think, both uh, conceptual and maybe even a handful of practical overlaps in the e-discovery world. But they really, they're they're kind of, you know, they're they're in the same uh, genus, if you would, but not the same species, right? Like that might be a a good way to, to, to do it, right? Like, yeah, they're on the same me- menu, but they're two completely different foods, right? There you go. They're right. You might go to the same restaurant. Let's see if I can pull that analogy forward at all. Um, probably going to destroy it. But it, that process of e-discovery does does uh, uncover a lot of sensitive data. And uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in the in the big pharma world where mm. e-discovery was just it's literally an everyday thing, right? Like at any given point, and I mean every given point, there is some there is some legal hold on some information, and it does require a continuous knowledge of 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 that. But uh, I think you kind of get caught up, or or organizations such as ourselves, and got caught up in also duplicating and or gathering a lot of aggregating, I should say, a lot of sensitive information as well too. And it sounds like you're saying there may be some implications there that we need to think about. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, for sure. And one of those in particular, um, to to kind of come full circle with the question, if you would, was yeah, I think you described it as uh, as considering how we protect that sensitive data as being a bit analogous to to protecting privilege during the review process. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, typically in the downstream review workflows, you get when when document review is actually happening, you've got document reviewers, eyes on a computer screen, paging through documents, and they'll have the opportunity to mark things as privileged or potentially privileged. And then they can make further call. Yes, it's privileged and make a note about this is why it's privileged. And that can be, you know, and it needs redaction or it should be withheld. They can kind of keep these notes associated with the document. And then as a review marches through and it's time to, you know, create the production of those documents, um, which is usually, you know, a digital file. All of these steps happen to ensure that the privilege information doesn't leak out. And along with that, Usually there's a thing, you know, the privilege log that is keeping a note of every document that's had something withheld or redacted based on what's privileged in it. All of those tools can be kind of replicated in the sense of privacy. This The spreadsheet was withheld because it is an HR spreadsheet that includes all of this personal information. It was about benefits and this wasn't that. Or maybe it is some kind of... Uh, an HR employment issue and salary information is relevant, but maybe the social security numbers, the zip codes, the addresses, the people's names can be taken out or just sort of saying, hey, yeah, there's a spreadsheet that includes this, but we need to talk about what the safe way is to protect people who aren't implicated, whatever that is. It's just, it's it's following some of these basic principles about being organized and keeping track of the the data points so that um, individuals can make a responsible decision yeah. when they need to. Yeah, no, that would be important for sure. I'm curious, uh, when you hear the word privacy personally, what, what does that mean to you? Oh. Data privacy. 
These days, it means to me a bunch of pop-ups in my browser. (laughs) It's the consistent, um, you know, manage your settings. This website uses cookies. Manage your settings. This website uses cookies. Top shelf where mama hides the cookies. Uh, So I think that that's one of the things. And then uh, as a parent, I just always, you know, kind of, I I could get into a lot of thinking about what privacy means for this next generation of kids who have grown up with parents posting their pictures online before they even, you know, know what, yeah, before they walk and before they know what that is, there's clearly no consent there, you know? Um, so I kind of, I I think about a lot of that and I think about, you know, uh, what's the baby shower and, you know, the registry at at amazon.com. So they've known before my child was born, probably (laughs) more about Mm -hmm. this kid than, than the kid knows. So, um, I, I, I think about privacy, it's the personal privacy that I always think about. That's good. I mean, I think more and more people are turning that way and it didn't used to, it wasn't like that. Right. I don't think it was really a thing even not too long ago. Right. Gabe, a lot of people are becoming more. Certainly aware. How do you handle uh, those types of things in your, in your personal life about getting, getting too much into your own personal privacy, but but things such as consent of those around you, the information that you may have casually shared in the past. What does that look like for you both now as, as someone who probably doesn't share that information? I'm guessing like you wouldn't just take pictures and put them on Facebook and then tag everyone in there. Um, or And or the person who has pictures taken and people are just like tagging them all the time, things of that nature. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember the tagging thing kind of in the early days of Facebook when, you know, it was these blasts from the past and, and, you know, like elementary school Shakespeare play pictures are being tagged in from people that have a name that I don't recognize because they went off and, you know, got married and stuff. Um, And, and I think that from that, you know, I think at least for my generation generally, and, and my, my group, there's a lot of Hey, I'm going to post this. Do you mind if I tag you? And there's kind of, that is just a way that I I see it playing out in, in my life. I don't have a huge social media, like personal presence. It just, I I don't do a ton of that. Um, So yeah, I think it's just do unto others a little bit, which is hard because a lot of others, I suppose, do really want the likes and the clicks and they want to be tagged and refollowed and tweeted and yeah, for sure. For sure, for sure. It's an addiction. Mm-hmm. Especially you know, Twitter, LinkedIn, or not well, yeah, LinkedIn now. Um my uh Facebook, I was about to say MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little, little outdated there, Cameron. Um mission failed. We'll get them next time. And Instagram, you know, it was funny. I, uh, I use Instagram and for the first time, I'm not sure if it had to do with the Apple update, but, um, when you go to view somebody's story, it'll actually block it out and say, do you want to view their story and allow them to know that you viewed their story? Oh, wow. I think, I think it's a new privacy setting, uh, that I don't know if it's Apple's, 
Um, I'm not sure, but I thought that was interesting. It's it's something new that had just started popping up, which which I thought was that is interesting, kind of cool because it gave you a choice. It gave the user a choice, which I believe it is Apple uh, that's controlling that, at least from my understanding. But I think that's consistent um, with some news headlines I've seen recently. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting. Um, are you an Apple user? I am. Well, I I, okay. I use lots of things. I think but we all yes. are, at least on this call. So everybody's safe. <laughs> it's a safe space. Um, <laughs> I, I have an interesting question for you. And if you want to put yourself in this position, um, it, let's just say at, at, at ProSearch, you had a $100 budget and you know, the owner of the company came up to you and said, Hey, we need a data privacy program. Here's a hundred dollars. Where would you start? Um, food. I would start with food. And, and what I mean by that is I think it's, it's a team effort. Um, and so if a hundred dollars was the way to get this started, I would, I would bring folks in from across the organization and try to build goodwill through food. And then, you know, take it from there. But I mean, I think, you know, David, it, the privacy I think really starts with, with the infrastructure, the technical infrastructure and the security of that. Um, and it, it, if you don't have that, if, it, if your data is not safe, then everything that you're doing, everything that I've talked about that's so important, knowing what's there, knowing where it is, like that really mm -hmm. is is the way to go if you know um, that wherever that data is, that it's safe and that it's secure. So maybe it's just all food for for my colleague who's the director of IT. Oh. Now I'm curious, food, I'm, you know, obviously love comes from food. Is this going to be something you're going to make? So you're going to buy and then make, or is this going to be a takeout? I could, I could do either. I've been, you know, it is, there was an obligation, I think, when we all went into lockdown to perfect my sourdough technique um, and really get going with the baking and the cooking. So sure. That sourdough thing has been a huge hit for a lot of people making your own sourdough. It sounds like you were involved in sourdough shenanigans before the lockdown, the way you phrased it. Probably a little bit, but it's easier. You know, the thing about sourdough, right, is that that it 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 takes time, um, and you kind of want to hit things like at interval. So, you know, your next commitment to your sourdough might happen when you would otherwise be commuting or at the office. So, being home makes the sourdough easier as compared to other quicker quicker breads interesting i guess i didn't think about it that way and yeah it hit certain commitments when those things were, were actually happening fascinating all right there's been enough talk about sourdough it's it's been yes. i love sourdough it's like one of my favorite breads but uh, oh i agreed i was i was just gonna give a shout out to a, a local place in tampa that's right down the street from our house it's a sourdough sandwich shop and they also make pizza. Nice. So if you ever get a chance, Gabe, 
I'll send that to you. Actually, I'll put it in the show notes for everybody. If you're in the Tampa area ever, they, uh, it's definitely a place to go to. Are, are they sponsoring this episode? I mean, how's this work? I'm going to ask. I'm going to see if they will. Because <laughs> if not, I sponsor them all the time. Free pizza out of it. Yeah. I'll, I'll take that. Um, I have, I have another question for you, Gina, clearly, because this is our podcast. But what, what, what do you think? There, is there one thing you wish you knew before getting into this industry? I mean, I don't know. That's a tough one because I don't think the industry didn't really exist like it wasn't the kind of like, like, you know, I think there's, there's kind of a, a, a saying like, you know, nobody went to law school to become a discovery attorney. It's just this, you know, it's, it's one aspect of law school. I certainly didn't go into linguistics thinking that I was going to work in discovery. And probably when I started, you know, I work with, with folks who have been in, I think the e-discovery or the discovery industry grew out of like paper copiers and scanning and highlighting file folders like in Clueless for the December 12th call or whatever that was, you know, and, and then the, the data all became digital. So um, I guess I, I, I think I just, perhaps I wish I knew that there were more things that linguists can do outside of being a professor that, you know, and I think that, that for now, I mean, Linguists are great. They've got analytic skills. They understand, you know, language and communication, all of these really um, fundamental skills. And was, I think it might've been on an, one of the episodes of your podcast. Somebody talked about uh, a portfolio career or a portfolio. Yes, yes, yes. yes right. Yes. Like that idea, it's the return of the generalist. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, linguistics is, is, is a huge, it's, it's a great, just a plug for linguists and linguistics programs out there. You get, you get folks coming out of a, a training program like that and they've got the analytic skills, but also the kind of the social understanding. Um, it's, I think it's a really great, so many job opportunities in a background in linguistics instead of always being afraid, what am I going to do with this? They actually make for very uh, good product managers also because of those skills you just mentioned. And they tend to have high EQ, um, which also makes them great user experience and um, designers also. Um, there's actually a, a decent overlap of at least ones I know of linguists that have gone into one or two of those fields. Mm -hmm. uh, and the the conversation of the generalist, I want to, I, I remember that now, I think it was like Mike, Mike Santangelo, or it was someone else who did mention it the other day. And on this show also, we talked a lot about, you know, transference of skills, mm -hmm. namely, namely, where are we going to find all of the people necessary to do all of the jobs that will, will exist? We already have this, in my opinion, false uh, view of the world as though that there are not enough people to perform information security, cybersecurity functions. Right. How in the world are we going to keep up then with this glut of privacy? And I think what you're touching on there is one of those things where like, you know, may, maybe there's a, a role for, for linguists as well, too. Like the fact that, that lawyers have, have by trade uh, naturally found a home in privacy. You need to look no further than, than the ecosystem of, of privacy technology and professionals around to, to see that. 
I think there's equally a home for, for some of the others also. Yeah. Um, what do you think of that intersection of, of privacy and, and the law beyond, beyond kind of the, the very theoretical and, and even just the, the courtroom practice stuff? Like, but outside of that, in the technology space, the, any interesting trends you see there? I mean, I think that I think that a lot of the tech companies have hit on the fact that privacy is a personal issue for for many people. So there is certainly a show around giving individuals, maybe lovers, to control their personal privacy. You know, I'm not sure. It's it's just it's funny, you know, right? Because if you if you if you take privacy as it's talked about a lot, there's sort of there are people who come at privacy as like, that is a human inalienable right that people have a right to their privacy, right? And like, people are very passionate about that. And then other people are, you know, come at it like privacy is a thing that, that governments can grant you. Um, you, you know, it's like, you need to ask for permission, or, you know, is, is, it really kind of comes, if, if a government can grant you rights to privacy, then maybe it wasn't something that you had before the, you know, so it's, a, it's, it's kind of a, um, um, uh, a little bit of a, a messy spot. And I think that, you know, a lot of the tech com- in, in technology, then I think there are companies that can be founded and their principle, their founding principles can be based in like either of those things, but in general, in terms of like persuading consumers to buy from them, mm-hmm. I think they're doing a lot of work right now to at least create the illusion that there's there's uh, a, a concern for an individual's privacy. I just don't know which one of those things that's coming for. Cause I gave it to you or because you had it before, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know everyone's launching point to that. That, uh, that notion that they granted to us as an they being the government granted to us. Um, and you're right. because We've talked about this on the show before too. Someone who's a bit more knowledgeable on, on the topic from the, from the legal perspective had mentioned that the Constitution itself does not, the U.S. Constitution is, does not, uh, does not make mention or note of privacy being one of those you know inherent rights that that we are granted with, which is fascinating to think about. Um, and I think that topic was was first debated uh, well over some two hundred years ago. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken. I'm going to get this right. Someone's going to go back to our old episodes and, and correct me. The very first HBR article, right? Right. The Harvard, Harvard Business Review. I think that's what the first article was written on was, was uh, this topic to some degree. Um, oh, wow. I either got that, I either got that wrong, but I'm in the right, like, you know, ballpark-ish. Garden. Yeah. I'm, I'm hopefully I'm in the right garden or I'm, I'm completely off base, but I do recall that from one of our previous shows. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm super curious because you mentioned this before about uh, ads and stuff, and I think you just brought something else up. But I'm curious, how does it make you feel when you get those targeted ads of things that you've talked about or searched? How does that make you feel personally? Um, occasionally, I like it, um, especially when I think that they think they're giving me credit for being hipper. <laughs> Maybe I actually, um, like, but, but most of the time I I don't, I don't really like it. And it's hard because sometimes, you know, I, I, 
I just, I feel, I feel it. Like, I feel like they're, they are, they are tracking, you know, that was a good job targeting that ad to me. And sometimes I think it's really nice, but most of the time I'm just a little bit creeped out by it. And I just need to reconcile that. Yeah, and the other thing is, you know, I, data science and, and numbers and volumes, it's sort of like, they're not really targeting me personally. They're talk, they're targeting like a cluster of attributes, you know? So it, maybe I just need to, 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 to depersonalize it um, and take it for what it is. It's just a bunch of data points. I am more than my data points. Ooh, could that be a title? Yeah. It might be. <laughs> Are you, <laughs> I like it. That could be your next book or first book or article. I don't know. An article, could be the yeah, title I, of the show. Yeah. I have more than my data points. Sure. I like that. All right. You heard it here first on Privacy Please. You're like the launching, <laughs> the launching <laughs> pad springboard to greatness. Yeah, I, it just, it's, it's fascinating. Um, I just was curious on how people feel about that because I kind of get crossed too. I, it comes up a lot for me and sometimes I like it. Sometimes I'm just like, would you stop? Please leave me alone. Um, I feel like that's how most of us feel. And some of us like it as, at the same time, because it's almost like someone's poking you and saying, Hey, you wanted to buy this or you were interested in this here, here you go. Easy button. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really freaks me out when I don't think I've actually like typed a query into a search engine when I feel mm -hmm. like it's the Bluetooth. That's when I get really kind of creeped out by it. Well, I think it also tracks anything you click as well. Anything that you look at. Yeah. I believe. I don't think you have to type it in, but either way, it's weird. Did you ever get to see the social dilemma on Netflix? I have not seen that. You should see it. I've been told that. That'll I make you even it. more worried. Yeah. <laughs> Gabe, have you seen that? I did not, although I've told uh, I should. Um, you know, the thing for me is yeah. I, I made the decision very many moons ago that even things like MySpace were a bit too much of an invasion of my own privacy, that I have avoided those types of social media platforms like the plague. Um, so for me, the dilemma was never, should I put my information in there? The dilemma for me was always, how do I convince other people that it's a bad idea to, to have their information before? It's, I don't know. I, I don't say that to say like I, you know, I, I looked ahead and saw the future and, and uh, it's a great oracle. It's, uh, it, I, I know there were many people that came to similar conclusions. Um, yeah, that, that law of unintended consequences as we pull together so much data uh, is, is I, I think, also analogous to, to what it is that, that you're discussing, Gina, right? Like in that, in that discovery process, we, we, we perform a similar type of activity where we just kind of vacuum everything all up together. And I didn't like the idea of one company vacuuming that all up together. It's, it's enough when one company knows a lot about me. It's bad when they know a lot about all of us. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, let, let's go into this a little bit further, Gabe. 
and and Gina, you can chime in too. What what do you think? What do you think is going to happen now that Apple has stepped in with their privacy rights for our choice as users? That obviously hurt Facebook. Um, what what do you feel like that's going to turn into, or do you think it's going to be a very long process years? And and is it heading in the right direction for consumers and for people's privacy? So my guess is that Facebook would make a move that sort of like, if, if the Apple user just doesn't click permission granted in a bunch of places, then the app's not going to work and they'll count on the consumer's addiction to the app or, you know, to the, the, the doom scrolling or whatever, right. To just, to just grant all the permissions, you know, and probably a process of that. And then it's back to that end user license agreement. Like, can you really hold people accountable to an end user license agreement when it's eight miles long and unintelligible and written at, you know, a postgraduate level of just complexity, right? Like, Mm -hmm. but I I would, I would imagine that they would just be quick to, um, okay, make it something that's like a one and done kind of click through. And now it's back to life as usual. That would be my suspicion. And then if Apple's really going to take this other position, then they might break it down a little more. But to me, that's just sort of what, what seems to be a big corporate way of dealing with the problem as a business problem. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, because it almost takes away when, when you do that to Facebook, it takes away their entire agenda. And so they're, they're definitely gonna, I mean, they're already working on ways to, I don't know how they would go about it, but that's a good, that's a a good, good thought for sure. Gabe, what do you think? Oh, I think it definitely takes a lot of power away from them. We talked about this in the previous episode. Mm -hmm. There has been a lot of corporate power struggles in the technology world. They will always be right. Uh, Struggles to, to, gain competitive advantages in, in, in technology, struggles in, in customer acquisition. And now what we see is struggles in, uh, in all of those things combining uh, through a privacy lens, right? Like Apple's recent move to force all applications to disclose what they are, what data an application is gathering and whether or not uh, the customer um, wants to approve to that, giving, giving us the customers the rights to, to, uh, to choose yes or no those things and insisting that the product still be able to work even if I opt out of data collection. Like that takes privacy beyond uh, just a competitive advantage for organizations that protect your privacy and makes it such that now they are, they're, they're monetizing the protection of your privacy, right? So the only way you now monetize that anyway, I mean, but what Apple is, is pushing developers through is monetize their applications through through subscription, not through data gathering. I, I mean, that is that is one hell of a battlefront already, you know, with, with troops lining up uh, to, to be fought. So, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, that's for sure. And but anyways. Whatever happens, yeah. that's my hope. Is, is As I expect with most things free market, and, and trust me, those that know me, 
know that uh, I believe we are firmly in the late stages of capitalism, but but nonetheless, the free market being what it is and what what perhaps it still has left in its soul, I, I think this may be one of those areas where where the free market might actually um, give the customers something uh, of, of real value here as two competitors kind of duke it out for our business. My my cynical side says, you know, that law of unintended consequences is just going to come boomeranging back to smack all of us consumers in the face somehow. <laughs> but <laughs> we're, we're going to find out together, aren't we? <laughs> well, do you remember when, you know, I don't know, uh, it was probably decades ago at this point, but when you would move and you would have to get a new phone number and then hmm? you would have to pay $2 a month to have an unlisted phone number. Like to, to, I do remember. There was paying to remain anonymous. I do remember. And so it kind of is like, yeah, a little bit of a twist on on, on that sort of thing. You either subscribe to the service, you're either paying. It was at the same time when the first drafts of state level data privacy breach notification laws were being drafted and put into effect. and, And they included things like phone numbers and email addresses as personally identifiable information, which is accurate, but even those have lost their their potency, if you will, because of how polluted it has been. But yeah, no, I can remember that that aggravation of having to pay for my privacy in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And and so then you you know the humans being what they are, we just shifted our our normal modes of operation to, well, I'll just screen calls myself now, right? Like, sure, everyone will have my number, but I just won't answer them. And then things like texting right. came along and it was like, well, you know, you could text me. You, you can reach me that way also. Like you can, yeah, I, I think we might see, and you're right, we might see similar things. Um, might okay. see play out as this, yeah. You pay to be enlisted. You pay for caller ID. You pay for, mm-hmm. oh, wow, this is like a whole, I'm not as exciting as a cooking metaphor, but this is like a whole thing we can play with now. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't have to pay for Facebook or Instagram, but you monetary it, you pay for it monetarily. If that makes sense. You pay for it. You, you just don't pay for it. Yeah. With cash. You, You certainly pay for it with your data though. Right. All right. Well, Let's, uh, let's move on to our last segment, Dark Deep Secrets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As she cringes. <laughs> um, let, let's start off easy. If you had a one item that you could choose and you can put it into a time capsule and open it up in, let's say, 15 years, what would you put in there and why? Hmm. I mean, it would be creepy to say a kid, because I mean, but what, what you'd want is sort of to see like the Wonder Man, or, you know, <laughs> like to freeze in time, just the um, the innocence or the naivety of a of, of a kid, and then you know see how they react to the changes fifteen years from now. I don't know. That's interesting. I mean, not a Twinkie. I think that's been done. So, do you really like Twinkies that much? I don't. No. Yeah. They changed the. I was never a fan. 
they changed the recipe over 10 years ago. And I, I think they, I think they messed it up. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say, not interested in having them be a sponsor at this time. I'll we, take. We will gladly rediscuss re- <laughs> this if they are willing to change their recipe back to the original, at which point we shall reopen the negotiations. <laughs> That's fair. Gina, would you rather have a pet dinosaur or a pet dragon? A dinosaur. For sure. Why is, why is that? I, I, I like, I like, I, I don't think that, I think brontosaurus maybe lost their status, but I think that dragons would only be worthwhile if they were fire breathing dragons. And that is just a hazard. I live in a densely populated area and um, pragmatics. Yeah. Very, very fair. Very fair yeah. answer. I appreciate that there's some pragmatism when considering dragon versus dinosaur. That's good. That's good. Um, (laughs) What's your favorite uh, go-to snack this past uh, year being stuck at home? Um, Well, recently we just ordered some of the um, sabrositos nuts, you know, that are like the little, we call them bodega nuts, but like sort of Mm -hmm. the, the little packets and you can get lime, um, kind of lime and chile, or there's one that's, I think it's called Estilo Japonese. They're like these peanuts. They're Japanese style. They're coated in a little sweet coating. And then Ooh. there's just a fiery one. So yeah, it's kind of, it gives this feeling like, Oh, you only usually pick those up. If you're out and about, like you stop in at a bodega and you come out with mm-hmm. your the water that you went in for or the magazine or the pen or whatever it was. And you come out with some treat. And so those have been good. Can never go wrong with nuts. Mm-hmm. The thing that I miss most that, that brought me back as you were describing it is, is my friendly neighborhood bodega cat. I haven't seen, mm-hmm. I haven't seen a friendly neighborhood bodega cat since I moved to Florida. So, Right. Yeah. Are those only up north? I mean, they're only in bodegas, of which one can only find a proper bodega. Yes. Do you have like a friendly neighborhood alligator or crocodile or you know, something like that? Considering this is Florida, I wouldn't be surprised if there was. Yeah. Local local bait and tackle shop doubles as the local bodega. And there's an alligator <laughs> there hanging out on top of a bag of sourdough bread. See? That the made. <laughs> so you just have to reset your expectations. That's right. That's right. Localize. That's right. Um, being that it's uh, Mother's Day coming up, um, and you are a mom, uh, what are you looking forward to this Sunday? Swapping, doing nothing. <laughs> but will you do nothing though? Nope. Probably not. Nope. No. <laughs> well, let's let's leave a little uh, applause here for all moms sure. uh, in this section. Everywhere. Shout out to moms. I think we yes. did a shout out to mom's last, last episode. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. okay. We did. We, we did. We did with, we did with, uh, with Larry. Um, cause he, he had brought up his mom. So anyways, shout out to moms cause mother's day is coming around the corner. So Welcome the privacy please podcast, a show hosted by a bunch of moms. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I'm guilty. <laughs> That's awesome. Guilty. Um, what, what's your favorite TV show of all time? My favorite TV show of all time um, might be MASH the uh, from the 70s. Alan mm-hmm. Alda, Loretta Swit, 
that crew. I really like that show. Not bad. Um, what would you hope people say at your funeral? I know it's dark. I don't know. <laughs> it's a weird question, right? Wow. <laughs> Um, Here, maybe maybe I'll change the context. Uh, how, how would you want to go uh, or be remembered? Oh wow! You know, decent you know. person, decent human. Yeah. I just a good human. I think that I just I think there's room for goodness in humans these days. More of that. That's a good yeah. one. I think everybody hopefully would feel that way. Um, and, and a more personal question here. This is important for privacy, please, guests, and uh, for our listeners as well. But what, what is your TP situation at the home? Um, do you guys have your toilet paper on? Is it over or under when you put it on the rack? Over. There is no other way. See? Applause. I, 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 I'll go, yeah, I know. <laughs> there's There's other people out there. We're not pointing yeah, any fingers. There are other people out there. <laughs> this world. Yes. <laughs> yes. But that is the right answer. Yeah. <laughs> well, Gina, this has been really fun and uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, sorry for my technical difficulties on my side. But uh, again, thank you for uh, what you do at ProSearch for writing articles about uh, privacy and law. And uh, I hope, hope to see some more come out from you. And we're really excited for what you're doing over there. And um, if there's anything that you want to share in the, in the show notes for anybody for ProSearch or for you personally, uh, we would love to put that in the show notes. Gabe? Excellent. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I would equally like to extend my thanks. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, and uh, how can the folks find you if they were looking for you elsewhere, uh, social media <laughs> or anywhere I else? I got I got a, a LinkedIn profile, Gina uh, <laughs> Toronto, and uh, ProSearch.com. Perfect. Excellent. We'll make sure all of that gets in the show notes. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I just wanted to thank all of you out there for tuning in each and every week, and to all of our amazing guests for coming on. I, I know that there are millions of other shows, and it means the world to have you with us on this journey. We are so grateful that you choose to listen to us each and every week. If you like the show, tell a friend, have them tell their friends, and then make maybe make some new friends along the way uh, so we can continue to spread the word and keep learning together. Let's protect what matters most. And by the way, DJ, can you go ahead and drop that outro beat and keep it classy? We'll see y'all next week. <laughs>